Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to a final, final might be too strong a word, to a final episode on the text of Les Miserables. You have done it. I can't believe it. We finally made it. We We have made made it to the end of Les Miserables. You know us all at this point, so I'll forgo the introduction. <laughs> Ladies, how how dry are the eyes? Is there mascara? Did we wear? Did we remember some waterproof mascara for the end of this book? Oh man, if I sound subdued, it's that I have been crying recently because of the end of this. Just book, crying you know? and crying. Just yeah. crying and crying. I know. I thought I was ready, and you guys, I wasn't ready. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, isn't it great that he ended with? Plot. Do you guys remember how Tolstoy ended with like three different essays to yeah. finish off his point? Yeah, really I, I was thinking that too. <laughs> I yep. preferred I preferred this ending. I also <laughs> I went in. I'll confess. I went into the ending of this story, knowing what happens, but not having read it before. And I was concerned that the romanticism was going to be so rank and so flowery and so melodramatic that it was going to ruin the pathos at the end of the story. And I was delighted to find that that is so far from being true. He was as an author poised and articulate and underlined all of his thematic content so beautifully. And the characters were believable in the things that they thought, the way that they acted, the stuff that they said. Mm -hmm. I just, I just thought it was so satisfying. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. What a satisfying end. I also Mm -hmm. should have trusted him where Marius's character is concerned. And I know we'll go into that more, but, the way that he built the tension into an absolute, at least for me, I was wrathful. I hated Marius <laughs> by the end of this, you know? I just thought, yeah, you, yeah. there is no excuse for you as a person, you know? <laughs> but he, I should have trusted him. I should have just relaxed and enjoyed the journey because the, the turnaround and the redemption story there was so worth the wait. And it was just kind of masterfully done. Hmm. Yeah, agreed. Emily, what stuck out to you? Um, well, uh, my initial thought is that it actually takes us to the first chapter of our reading for today is that I think that first chapter is the only time that Cosette actually gets to be a human. I mean, we've been joking about that the whole time. She actually is believable in that section as a, as a girl. Do Maybe you, not a woman. Let's be more specific mature, here. But, Do you mean the twilight waning book eight, the basement room? I do. Yeah. So, so Jean Valjean decides that he's so lowly that they will only be meeting in this dingy old basement, yep. like servant servants quarters. And Cosette chides him for it. And uh, she says, this is getting serious. What have I done to you? I declare I'm confused. You owe me amends. Later on, she just yeah. keeps pressing on it and she's trying to get him to tell her the truth. And then she just hisses at him, which I think <laughs> is like, that's the most not ideal thing that she has done this whole time. Okay. Even if it is described as a beautiful cat-like gesture. I was going to say, she's, you're arguing that she's the most human 
And yet she literally is animalistic. It was so weird. (laughs) I thought you're either an angelic untouchable figure or you're an animal. What? (laughs) (laughs) That might be a little harsh. I think I might side. Well, I don't know. I mean, she still is not very smart. He's the, the sentence. She had no idea what was going on. Happened like four times over the course of this reading. Her fault. I was gonna. About, I was yeah. gonna go on to say that. I think it has more to do with the fact that Marius and Valjean have been shielding her like some some goddess from all of the the real elements of the scenario, which is not great. I I can't. You guys, I can't. I was tr- I was gonna try and be sweet. I was gonna be like, yeah, you're so right. Oh, Cosette, becoming a real person. But no. In book nine, Supreme Shadow, Supreme Dawn, <laughs> listen to these preposterous sentences. Are you ready for this? Without knowing why herself, and without affording any grounds for censure, her soul had so thoroughly become her husband's soul that whatever was covered with shadow in Marius's thoughts was obscured in hers. She was thoughtless rather than forgetful. At heart, she really loved the one whom she had so long called father, but she loved her husband more. <laughs> I just I'm not saying that this you is but. sustained. <laughs> <laughs> she's not. She still remains ultimately some kind of like angelic, innocent, even naive womanhood. But uh, I just, anyway, I thought, the first chapter for today was a little interesting. No, you're right. And I don't mean to poop on you when I say this. I just think <laughs> as a character, Cosette has disappointed. I, I think that she could have been well-rounded and Hugo chose not to. He's using her as a symbol instead. And yeah. I, I think the story could have been stronger had he chosen not to do that. Huh, that's interesting. I don't know that I disagree necessarily. On the other hand, it isn't that he can't write a woman of complexity. There are some in the story. And it does seem to line up really well with his thematic aims in painting the, the plight of the orphan and the, and the woman mm-hmm. in the society that he's writing about. There is, we've said, we've made this comparison before, but there is something of the Dante-Beatrice relationship between Jean Valjean and mm-hmm. Cosette. Only it's not, instead of being romantic, it's like filial. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it kind of holds true. He, just like Dante, he, she is his gateway to divine love. And there's a point at which he mistakes her for the thing itself. Hmm. Well, if that's true, yeah. if she's supposed to be a representative of divine love, then you have to take it all the way. And the things that she says, you have to take as God's own word. So when she says things like, uh, you are good, a pronouncement of mm-hmm. a value judgment, you have to take it as the word of God. This divine right. character says that he is good and therefore he is, that kind of thing. And I think that holds up. I think that that works. I'm just saying mm-hmm. as a reader who appreciates a well-rounded character, because that disappoints me. Yeah, well, I'm with you on that front. I do think she's a little bit of, of a shadow. I didn't. Ninny. I didn't. I didn't find her actions believable. If I, if my <laughs> father abandoned me and refused to come even to the basement, I wouldn't just let that go and and forget about it. You know, like right. no, that's, that's not a fair. believable way for a daughter to act. Yeah. Well, I have been on record as saying that I am not a huge fan of the Dante Beatrice situation. Anyway, <laughs> right. So <laughs> I do. I acknowledge it as a highly controversial. Right. A literary tool. As a literary tool, it it is yeah. consistent and it works. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about Valjean, because I think there's two ways to read the situation 
at least before we get to the closing moments between when Thenardier reveals everything to Marius mm-hmm. and they fly to Valjean's side. Up until that moment, there's two ways to read what's going on. Either Valjean is, from the perspective of the author, um, doing something foundationally self-sacrificial and is laying down his own prerogative to be happy at the altar of Cosette's happiness. Or he is willfully serving as his own judge and passing an unjust sentence. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder what you guys thought about that as you were reading along. Did you have pity and compassion for Valjean in an unmingled sense? Or was there also some frustration with his pigheadedness in the way he's dealing with himself and his daughter? I had compassion on him in our last reading, but I would love, I really think Marius has the last word Mm -hmm. on this situation. Right. That's why I asked the question leading up to that moment. Oh, okay. Yes. We're going to definitely talk about the last word. Well, in that case, then no. In this section, I thought it was much more harsh than in the previous section. I think that there is a... I don't want to call it a false humility because I think he really believes it, but there's like a flagellation here that Mm -hmm. is getting to the point of being inappropriate. Yeah. Well, Megan, what do you think? Oh, I agree with that. I think the the scene where... He walks, he's going to walk to her house and he denies himself entrance to the house. And then he walks to the, to the sidewalk and he refuses to go further than that. And like the, the day by day returning to see what he's been denied and then go home again. But he's denying it to himself. That does seem like he's, um, he's punishing himself on purpose day after day. So maybe that's right. the, one of the things you're thinking of, Emily, when you say there's a self-flagellation of sorts. Well, and it's not that he's doing it right by himself, because Marius has also clearly started to try and communicate around the edges that he doesn't want <laughs> Valjean <a> there. <laughs> but, um, but I think you're right. And I wonder if, in light of the last passage, which we're still not going to talk about yet, but it seems to me that his understanding of God is still developing, is mm-hmm. still maturing. Yeah. That this is a character that doesn't, that doesn't really reach the full moment of maturity and revelation and understanding until the final pages of the of the story because he believes he's doing all of this because he deserves it and if the novel's topic is god is more than just then there's something about this god that valjean still doesn't understand he loves god and he knows that god loves him but there's still something tangled up about his vision of the interaction between mercy and justice yeah Remember the scene at the, it's, I mean, it's hundreds of pages ago now, at the very beginning when Jean Valjean is walking into the town and we're first seeing him, it's raining and he looks up into heaven and has some thoughts about God. Uh Rain and the divine presence are inextricably linked in that scene. I thought it was interesting that in chapter four of this section called Attraction and Extinction, he walks to the, the corner and looks at Cosette's house and it becomes his habit and the neighbors notice. And the sentence goes like this. Sometimes when the weather was bad, he carried an umbrella under his arm, which he never opened. The good women of the quarter said, he is an innocent. The children followed him laughing. And I underlined what they say of him. He is an innocent because I think that that word has two different connotations. On the one hand, mm. he is an innocent. He's, he's simple-minded. He's a fool is what they mean, yeah. you know? But 
of course, innocence speaks volumes to the conversation we've been having about mercy and justice and the law and whether or not you're guilty and that kind of thing. So here he is not opening his umbrella, not shielding himself from whatever heaven will drop on his head, you know? And yet that could be seen on the one hand as a foolish thing. You're an innocent, you're simple-minded for not opening the umbrella that you've been given. Go ahead and open it. You have it in your hands. But there's a humility to it also. Maybe he can be, Mm -hmm. he's innocent. He can be forgiven for Mm -hmm. waiting for God to show him who he is. Yeah, absolutely. Accepting whatever comes down on his head. Mm. There's a uh, Cosette at the end of their first conversation asks him, so who are you? Just point blank. And I think that is the major question here. He's taken up his name, Jean Valjean, but what does that name mean? Who are you? Who is Jean Valjean? And at this point, he has nothing to say except for convict, like escaped convict. Right. The name and the identity that goes along with the name Jean Valjean is a punishment and a burden that he's still carrying around. But the identity that he's been given by Cosette comes with the name Father, and that he rejects out of hand. So what about Marius? I don't know if this is jumping too far ahead, but in this conversation, the conversation of identity, I thought it was cool that Thenardier, he seems like infernal Jean Valjean, Hmm. and he shows up to reveal to Marius what he thinks Marius doesn't know. And he, he, he dresses up in a disguise and Marius catches on to who he is. And the narrator tells us he took off his face as one takes off a hat. Mm-hmm. And that is just such an interesting reflection of what Jean Valjean has been doing. Yeah. He, he just, he just took off his face Fauchelevaux, for uh, Jean Valjean. But here we have another way that can go taking off one's face like a hat, the kind of carelessness of fleeing aside one's identity. So Hmm. maybe seen through that lens, what Marius does and the caution with which he proceeds in the matter of Cosette's inheritance, he he refuses to spend the money and he tries to shield Cosette from Fauchelevent. Uh, Maybe he can be forgiven because he's just seen him Hmm. take off his face like a hat take off his his mm. mask good yeah so he's I like that he's got reason to be distrustful yeah he needs to flip the two he sees Jean Valjean as a kind of Thenardier mm-hmm. and because of his father he is mistaken Thenardier for a type of Jean Valjean and he's got a I mean who better to turn those tables again than Thenardier himself hmm yeah yeah, the foil relationship there is really, really clear and super interesting. Right? They're both men of many names, and they've, and they've both had their careers begun by trouble with the law, by tangling with justice and ending up on the wrong side of society. Marius met both of them, or witnessed both of them, in the Jondrette Garrett, uh, interacting mm-hmm. with each other. Mm-hmm. That's actually yeah. the, the pinnacle moment where he recognized each of them. And it hasn't yeah. been explained yet, but they have been put up as foils through the whole story. For him mm-hmm. specifically. Right. Which, of course, is because, to draw the whole thing together, Marius's obsession, and this might even be a comment by Hugo on the obsession of youth, is with justice. Mm. Right? And, and you can, I, I can sort of see this, this two paths being charted through life. You begin 
obsessed with justice in the way that Marius is, in the way that Valjean is in his convict days, in the way that Thenardier is. And then you can go two different directions with that obsession. Either as you mature, your, your understanding of justice ripens and mercy is introduced in the scenario, like Valjean, or you become Javert. Mm-hmm. for whom justice is all and everything and the only face of God. Mm-hmm. And I think Marius is teetering along on that ledge. The only thing that's keeping him on the the Valjean side of that line at this point, well, I guess two things. The presence of Cosette, which is a category of love and and devotion that has transformed him from the inside out. And then also the fact that some man whose name he does not know delivered him from the sewers when he was on the wrong side of the law, when he was participating in an insurrection, Hmm. right? It's interesting to see Marius caught between these two extremes and also that not really being his fault. I think he acts poorly towards Fauchelevent and with all of the information that we have as readers, it's hard not to judge Marius for being silly and an ass about how he handles this whole thing. On the other hand, he does think that Valjean took Javert out and shot him, right? And his knowledge of Javert is that he is a part of the law, he's justice. Javert's justice. Until that misconception has been dispelled, I think it actually is perfectly consistent with Marius, even with his goodness, to react the way that he does to Valjean. Along those lines, the opening sentences of Book Nine, Supreme Shadow, Supreme Dawn, are these, and I wonder what you guys think of this statement. It is a terrible thing to be happy, how pleased we are with it, how all-sufficient we think it. Being in possession of the false aim of life, happiness, how we forget the true aim, duty. We must say, however, that it would be unjust to blame Marius. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It would be unjust. Well, I do it anyway. But yes, I see what you mean. Do you agree with that summarizing statement? The false aim of life is happiness, the true aim is duty and the relationship between the two as it's kind of carried out through the end of the novel Hmm. because there's a sense in which if that statement is true it what could we call what jean valjean is doing here duty or has he maybe he's forgotten his duty to cosette he would call it duty but like i said i think his understanding of the world and god is continues to mature right up until his last breath which is also a beautiful statement about how things go in the world but um yeah i think valjean would call it duty absolutely but you wouldn't call it duty. No, I would call it a misunderstanding of the grander narrative mm-hmm. of the way that God has been orchestrating his life. Megan, you're chewing. What do you think? Um, I don't know if I agree with, with Hugo's assumption. Uh, Hugo assumes that we will agree with him about this statement. Being in possession of the false aim of life, happiness, we forget the true aim, duty. I don't know if I grant his point. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, if there's a happiness that's a gift from God, which I think is one of the things that Hugo is positing with his conclusion, which we'll get to, that happiness is a gift that God bestows, even just in his presence in your darkest moment, you know, that Hugo's God is a God who answers. Happiness is very, very much a part of mm-hmm. the life of his creatures then. Um, mm-hmm. well, and, yeah. But maybe that's me misinterpreting he's thinking from a human perspective what you should spend your energy completing is duty towards your neighbor love for your neighbor rather than looking out for yourself which maybe he equates with happiness a search for Mm -hmm. happiness which i i i could go there with i wish i could talk to hugo you know say explain your statement that was subtle that was (laughs) nuanced i don't know that i agree with you you know well i wonder if tone is important here because i think there are several instances in which 
the statement, it is a terrible thing to be happy, is contradicted by the plot of this story. The story of the miserable people Mm -hmm. and his desire to make them happy, put in context with the grandfather's long speeches. And of course, it needs to be tempered. The grandfather's speech on happiness and its ultimate place in life is tempered by what we get in these chapters. But I, I do think that Hugo thinks happiness is a something of a basic human right Mm -hmm. right Um, that's why that line rankled i think yeah but i also think that it's possible those lines are coming as he treats marius right this is something that marius has yet to learn right he's burying himself in happiness and forgetting that he has a duty to get all the way to the bottom of the situation Mm -hmm. and reunite his wife with her father and at the I think what we see is at the end of duty is more happiness. Right. That that's the that's the flip. Yeah. That's the Deeper unexpected happiness. turnaround. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I could go there. That helps. It's the romantic language too. I mean, the end of that chapter. We must not blame these poor children. I just think, yeah, <laughs> I am going to blame them. I mean, Cosette's dad <laughs> is literally dying two doors down, and Marius doesn't have the wherewithal to decide that maybe some things are worth bending for you know Hmm. that's i do blame you (laughs) Hmm. mercy is a good thing to have you should cultivate that virtue marius you who cares so much about cultivating virtue yeah Hmm. i agree with that i definitely agree with that but that makes it even more compelling when marius delivers the kind-hearted and yet kind of frustrated rebuke to valjean at the end of the, of the story. When he comes mm. in and he says, why didn't you tell me right. any of this? And and on the one hand, it's the justice in Marius speaking. And I use justice in the sense of the person who sits at the bench and causes, <laughs> causes righteousness to go forward. Mm-hmm. It, more or less what he's saying is, hey, all of your good deeds have wiped out your comparatively minuscule mm-hmm. bad ones. <clears throat> why, why do you refuse to acknowledge that that's a possibility? Um, and, and I was with him on that. Because that was that's how I felt towards Valjean too. Oh my goodness, dude, you're keeping everyone in the dark just so you can be miserable? What's the point of this? Yeah, I, I love the way he put it. He said, you do more under pretense of unmasking yourself. You slander yourself. That is frightful. Right. Mm-hmm. You're not just telling the truth and giving yourself your right name. You're actually swapping an elevated name for a name that's too low for you. You're, you're lying mm-hmm. in another way. You're slandering right. yourself. Yeah, he says, you have not told the whole truth, mm-hmm. um, which which is really compelling. I think it's cool that Marius, even though it's his side gig because he don't need no money no more, but <laughs> he, he's, a, he's a practitioner of the law. Yeah. He, mm-hmm. he gets to judge and decide and plead and... Advocate. Um, he's on the side of making things. Yeah, he advocates. And so when he pronounces his judgment, you can take it as as a, a legal case, which Cosette in the earlier section, to go back to that again, I'm sorry, but she says that Jean Valjean, she doesn't know what his name is, Fauchelevaux, mm-hmm. Jean Valjean, it's all confusing to her. You, you are my uncle and my father and now you're nobody. She says, what revolutions are these? Mm-hmm. And so to kind of look back over the broad strokes of the book and see the revolution as an uprising against mm-hmm. the, the established law and to see Jean Valjean's name kind of mirroring the same yeah. turn here. And I'd love to keep thinking about those that comparison. Mm. Do. <laughs> Do keep thinking about the comparison. 
an uprising. His his name is the the trouble with his name is like an uprising. Is that what you mean by highlighting revolution? Or that there's some overturning of an established system Mm -hmm. that there's a deeper kind of justice that needs to break forth. Right. Well, and in that context, it's explicitly a relational one too, right? Mm -hmm. He has been somebody other than all the things he thinks are associated with that name he's telling her now. So in that, in that moment, maybe she's more perceptive than we give her credit for. She can tell that he's rejecting a whole identity that he, and, and in so doing, he's rejecting their relationship. It's unnatural. It is unnatural and sad. I mean, the scene that we get of him slowly dying in his garret and he's writing her, he's almost too weak to even hold a pen, but he wants to write to her and he says, I bless you. I'm going to explain something to you. And I was like, all right, here we go. He's going to explain everything and too bad it's not face to face, but at least she's going to get she's going to get what she deserves, which is the truth for goodness sake. But no, what he wants to explain is that she can use that money. It's not blood money. And that's all he's going to say to her. And I just thought, oh, for the love of God, bless your heart. (laughs) (laughs) He really does. He needs an advocate. He needs Marius to step in and have all of the information and correct this misconception that he has about being unworthy of love and forgiveness and acceptance and a family. I don't think that he can save himself in this context, Yeah, which is agreed. I think the most brilliant turn of the novel that Mm -hmm. our Christ figure does not in fact save everyone and then save himself. He is the most needy of all of our characters at the end. And that is what really got the tears started where I was concerned. Reading along this line uh, at the end, he's, he's gotten too weak. He can't even finish this little, this little letter to Cosette. And he gets really sad. He's thinking about her and he says, It's nothing to die, but it's dreadful to die without seeing her. She would smile at me. She would say a word to me. Would that harm anybody? And of course, we're all thinking along with him, no, it wouldn't harm anybody. There, these are invisible obstacles in your way. This is right. maddening. No, it is over forever. Here I am all alone. My God, my God, I shall never see her again. But I think it's, and I have said this through all of our podcasts, and they are many, they are legion. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> they are legion. Whenever a character in this story is all alone in a darkened room, Hugo finds some way to turn it on its head and remind us that his God is one who answers. His God is one who is there when you're all alone at your deepest, darkest moment. And what does he say? The one who is there in the darkness? Yes. The one who is there in the darkness is the only witness of usually of Jean Valjean's pain. So when Mm -hmm. he cries out, I am all alone. And his next word is my God, my God, which is also reminiscent of Christ on the cross, yeah. right? My right. God, yeah. my God, why have you forsaken me? I, I started crying again because this is a moment of intense hopefulness, actually. Mm. Uh, if Hugo's God really is one who answers, then the answer is coming and swiftly, you know? Yeah. Mm. So. Yeah, even if Valjean doesn't think it is. Right. Yeah. This is, this is why I was so excited and felt that um, I, didn't, I needn't have feared that romanticism was going to win the day in the end because um, he's so human, even despite all of the miraculous experiences that he has had and ones that he knew and in the having of them were miracles, right? I mean, Valjean himself has narrated to us the miracles that God has done in his life and experience. And he still reaches the end of his life and is capable of despair. Mm -hmm. It's the most human thing in the whole wide world. And I just, man, 
could not possibly have set up the final reunion mm-hmm. between him and his daughter and his new son any better. There's a sense in which the miracles that you mentioned beforehand, there would be a way for him to reason that they were always for someone else. That yeah. uh, he was saved f- to protect Cosette, or he was saved to, to be a martyr. Yeah, he was saved for the sake of something else. That mm-hmm. his job is to expiate his sins by serving other people. And now that he's at the end of his life and he's no longer useful to anyone, that mm-hmm. faucet is going to turn off. There's no need for him to receive a blessing because it, it's when it comes down to it, he isn't himself worthy right. of it. Hmm. Well, the first of several last words is given to Marius. And we talked about that a little bit, his, his good-natured rebuke of Valjean for not telling the whole truth. Mm-hmm. But then Valjean himself gives a speech to end the oh. work that I think is absolutely worth reading. Wait, do you want to do his last speech uh, before we talk about Thenardier at all? Well, we did talk about Thenardier, but we can go back that direction if you want to. Well, I don't know that, that there's anything super significant. It's just a big, long section. And there might be significance in, for example, him going to, to the costumer called the changer. Yeah. And yeah, that's a good point. Him being the one who, who delivers the news, we could unpack the significance of that choice. Hugo had a lot of ways that he could have made this come about, but he uses Tenardi on purpose. And I wonder, I want to know what you guys mm-hmm. think about that. So maybe, I, I don't mean to wreck the flow, but I feel like Jean Valjean's last words are kind of the end, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I thought that I was struck by the return of the newspaper articles. Oh, yeah. That uh, we received so, 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 so long ago. Right. Talking about Jean Valjean, his being revealed to be. Monsieur Madeleine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when those articles appeared the first time, they, it was a tragedy. They were a denunciation against him. Mm-hmm. And there was some misconstruing of the facts that were unjust. But in this moment, they are repur- the words are repurposed oh, yeah. for um, a salvific purpose. Oh, that's a great point. Mm-hmm. I, this is going to make everyone laugh, and you all should. But I couldn't help but think of Tolkien the whole time I was reading this section with Thenardier. Okay. It has been the obsession of great authors across the centuries, apparently, to use a a villain, the lowest of the low, to deliver the main character out of a difficulty that they can't deliver themselves from. And that is consistently used also as a tool for describing the adverse work of God. Yeah. In the world of the story. So I think of I think of Gollum <laughs> I was gonna say. carrying out Frodo's uh, carrying out Frodo's duty that that Frodo can't do. And I think Tenardier is doing the same mm-hmm. thing on behalf of Valjean here, though he doesn't know it. It's also that. interesting how he gets blessings heaped on his head anyway. Even though his intentions are wicked, yeah. Marius just throws cash at him and uh, says, Waterloo protects you uh, and only for you to be happy. That's all I desire. And so Tenardier gets everything that he wants. And this goes back to that statement at the beginning of the section about happiness not being the first yes. thing. He's thunderstruck. He says he was happy too. And with Marius's money, Tenardier became a slave trader. Yeah. Yeah, that made me wonder. I wonder what, uh, what Hugo thinks of Marius carrying out his father's wishes. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Yeah. And for Thenardier, it's not ultimately about his... He's been searching for happiness this whole time. It was never about how much money he had. Mm-hmm. Definitely it true. Was, 
Well, and I feel like we, we walked down this road a little bit earlier in the episode. The thing about the changer that interested me yeah. was that it's ineffective, ultimately. All he's doing is providing a sheen of authenticity over the top of these villains, but they're still villains underneath. Oh, yes. Um, and I think that whole principle is turned on its head when we look at Valjean and the identities that he's been wearing. Because those, it turns out, can't conceal him either. Mm. But what it is that they can't conceal is his humility mm-hmm. and his nobility and his goodness and his faith. Even the, the name that has been labeled convict, outsider, and not good enough can't conceal the worth that he has under the surface. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just went a couple pages ahead and I started crying again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. I'm ready now. Okay, so back to where we were a second ago with the last words of Valjean. I think this this speech is probably worth digging into and lingering on a little bit. I'm not sure if this is before. I think this is before the section you're talking about, but I thought there was, and it is words that he says. Oh, actually, no, it's, this is Cosette talking to him, saying that they're going to bring him home with them. Mm-hmm. For, I forbid you now to die. <laughs> yeah. The music um, in your mind, yeah. Yeah, yes. <laughs> She says, we're in a republic, aren't we, Marius? The program has changed. If you only knew, Father, I've had some trouble. There was a robin that made her nest in a hole in the wall. A horrid cat ate her up. My poor, pretty little robin who put her head out her window and looked at me. I cried over it. I would have killed the cat. But now nobody cries anymore. Everybody laughs. Everybody is happy. You are coming with us. How glad Grandfather will be. You will have your garden bed. You will tend it. And we will see if your strawberries are as fine as mine. And then I will do whatever you want. And then you will obey me. And that language just resonated so strongly of Lear to me. Oh, yes. Mm. Lear and Cordelia. Mm-hmm. I, will, I will kneel and you will bless me. We'll observe the gilded butterflies, etc., etc. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Um, which in that play, it's... Uh, it's poignant and highly tragic because they're not going to have that. They're going to die. And the same is true here. But uh, if anything, Hugo brings out the, la- the comedy lurking behind Lear in that scene. Um, mm. That this is, it's a little more like poignant. A promise of heaven? Yeah, there, there's a little more explicit promise that. A place this where will tears come. are no more. And- yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Hmm. Well, I don't know how you want to do this, Ian, in attacking the end. There are a couple of particular scenes, things that Jean Valjean says with this kind of a supernatural vision, because here he is seeing heaven simultaneously with being reunited with with Cosette. But he says, I'm a miserable man. I will never see Cosette again. I was saying that at the very moment you were coming up the stairs. Wasn't I silly? I was as silly as that. But we reckon without God. God said, you think that you're going to be abandoned, idiot? No. No, it shall not come to pass like that. Come, here is a poor man who has need of an angel. And the angel comes, and I see my Cosette again. Whew. So, so beautiful. Again, I just think it's the most powerful thing, that he sees himself as the neediest in the end, and watches the, the rain of mercy fall from heaven. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Ian, you're right that his perspective of God was incomplete up until this moment. But now I think he sees him. Mm -hmm. I think this is a a clear, well-rounded picture of the God of mercy and the God of love. Yeah, I think so too. 
And yet it takes place while he's dying. Mm-hmm. So there's still the contrast of the the darkness yeah. with the light. Oh, yeah. I've, I should have read to the end of the same little section because the last sentence he goes, and the angel comes and I see my Cosette again. I see my darling Cosette again. Oh, I was very miserable. And, you know, that ties into the title. He's uh, he's one of the miserables. <laughs> yep. But I think that Hugo's ultimate point is we all are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then it goes a step further even than that, I think, um, when it comes to his vision of God being made complete on his way to to heaven. So towards the end of his last speech, there's he stuffs a handful of things together in a few sentences that give us a complete picture, I think, Mm. maybe a definition for the phrase God is more than just. Okay. Let's see, where should I start? You were so sweet when you were little, you played, you hung cherries on your ears. Those are things of the past. The forest through which we have passed with our child, the trees under which we've walked, the convents in which we've hidden, the games, the free laughter of childhood, everything is in shadow. I imagined that all that belongs to me. There was my folly. Those Tenardiers were wicked. We must forgive them. Cosette, the time has come to tell you the name of your mother. Her name was Fantine. Remember that name, Fantine. Fall on your knees whenever you pronounce it. She suffered a great deal and loved you very much. Her measure, her measure of unhappiness was as full as yours of happiness. Such are the distributions of God. He is on high, he sees us all, and he knows what he does in the midst of his great stars. So I am going away. Oof. Touches everything, right? It's the whole story mm. in miniature told through the eyes of Valjean in his memory and what he's learned about it, right? He's meditating backwards on each of these pivotal moments and the phrase God is more than just mm-hmm. is being given definition, all the way down and through, right? So first of all, all these good things, these happinesses that we encounter are not belongings, they're gifts. Mm-hmm. And we can't possess them. Mm-hmm. We're given them yeah, to I experience them, right? And then there's the wickedness and the trials that we encounter with the Snardiers. What we do with that in the context of those gifts that we've been given is forgive, mm-hmm. right? That's exactly what we need to do. And then there's the contrast for those that we do love between suffering and happiness. Mm-hmm. And the only answer to that, and this is the question of the novel, what do we do about the miserable? Right. The only answer to that is we turn to the character of a God who knows what he does. And uh, love one another, which is his second answer. He says, understand the character of God, trust that he knows what he does, and then turn to one another and love. A little earlier in the section, he says, just because things are unpleasant, that is no reason for being unjust toward God. <laughs> I just yeah think, right uh we believe him because jean valjean would know he knows what unpleasantness is he knows what it's like to be treated unjustly himself his testimony of god is one that stands and in the process we give things their proper names mm-hmm. which i think that the ultimate significance of that is giving ourselves the relationship between ourselves and god the proper name mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. uh to, font- to remember fontaine's name and yes. i think that maybe that exposes why he spent so long just describing the misery of the people. Uh, He had lots of political ideas about that. He waxed eloquent, but ultimately I think what he was trying to do is to to name it. Mm. And that some, sometimes that there's not really a pat solution except to do that. Hmm. Hmm. To call things what they are. Mm -hmm. And in the face of it, I mean, I feel like we're circular reasoning here, but everything is, Everything about this is lovely and they are all connected. In the face of the misery, 
what stops you from dying a small death every day is relating to people. I mean, he says, Mm -hmm. I was in the midst of dying when you came in. That stopped me. It seemed I was born again. So whether she's Beatrice or whether she's his daughter, relationship and love of the other makes you born again in the midst of your suffering here in the, mm-hmm. in the natural world. There's a heaven on earth to be found in relating to one another and in forgiveness and humility mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. here with the miserables, you know, <laughs> before you go to heaven. I like that. Well, he leaves us in darkness, actually. Uh, Jean Valjean, those noble hands moved no more. He'd fallen back. The light from the candlesticks fell across him. His white face looked up toward heaven. He let Cosette and Marius cover his hands with kisses. He was dead. The night was starless and very dark. Without any doubt in the gloom, some mighty angel was standing with outstretched wings waiting for the soul. Hmm. It's kind of both at once. There's a there's hope of an angel waiting for him, but... The night was starless and very dark. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just, I'm just teasing out the thematic potential of that, though. If stars were representative of the eyes of a heavenly judgment, judgment is not speaking to Jean Valjean in this moment. Mm-hmm. The stars mm-hmm. have closed their eyes, and instead an angel mm-hmm. is waiting to receive him. You know? Yeah. Maybe that's the mm-hmm. wrong interpretation, but that's what I thought when I saw it. It was the stars mm-hmm. were shining down on Javert as he chose justice over mercy and the stars are yeah. blacked out when Jean Valjean goes to heaven I really like that it's uh that's I had not thought of that but then he's not being illuminated we talked a little bit there was a section where the stars were the ideal yeah. uh, one looked up and saw stars as ideal and those that's not the light mm. that falls with judgment upon Jean Valjean it's the light of the candlesticks mm. yep. and yes. the candlesticks were given to him in a moment of mercy when he did not deserve it at all mm-hmm. mm, I think that's right that's yeah. that's the light that he's illumined by now and we were told two pages back that the bishop was witnessing his death mm. so the giver yeah. of those do you need a priest is standing i have there. one yeah i have a priest he's standing here beautiful i think the so uh, good. <laughs> oh you guys i forgot his last words to marius though specifically are i have not always loved you <laughs> I, I ask your yeah. pardon now she and you are one to me <laughs> i appreciate that in the midst of all of this profound beautiful heavenly perspective but you you I sometimes hated. <laughs> you I sometimes hated. I just thought, okay, if Jean Valjean can say it, then so can I. <laughs> <laughs> well, I turn again to uh, the afterword, which is how we started our discussion, unless I missed my guess. Oh, yeah. Um, we opened it. the whole book with the afterword, which I reread today. Just wonderful. A great um, discussion of why this book is important. Mm. And the thing that I loved the most about it, he says a bunch of true and really thematically impactful things. Mm -hmm. But then he also says one of the best things about Victor Hugo is that as flowery as he is, he's still super funny. Do y'all remember that part when Marius picks up Cosette's handkerchief and spends days and days (laughs) breathing through it and sleeping with it and it belongs to the old man instead? (laughs) It's absolutely great. Yep. I am turning to the afterward. I saw, oh yeah, that actually wasn't the ending. The conclusion is his, his grave. His unmarked grave. So I, I take that back. I apologize. I had forgotten about that. His unmarked grave that someone later writes a, a rhyme on. We can imagine that's Marius, I guess. I don't know. Don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know about that. <laughs> that I, if it were me, if I were Hugo, 
uh, overheard on how to eat an elephant. If I were Hugo, <laughs> right. um, I would have left it with the conclusion. This guy's a schmuck. I know. I, think I would have too. It just seemed. I don't know why that was important to do his own. Well, he so he he dies anonymously. He gets they they give him what he wants, and he is given no marker on Earth to remember him by. And yet, someone comes along many years later and writes about him. So he, it isn't entirely true that he left no mark on the world. I mean, I think, but he I writes think, in pencil, and it's it's washing away. Well, that also, I mean, I think this is actually a step away from the personal narrative, and it's much shorter, so he doesn't. <laughs> so he can be forgiven. Waters. Yeah, he can be forgiven. But I, what I think he's really doing is underlining the, the distinction between the natural world, which is a given thing and a gift of God, mm. and the city of sepulchers, which is what he is, how he characterizes Paris mm. in this oh. last little chapter. City so the fact that Valjean is laid to rest in a field under a tree amid nature is better than being laid to rest in some sort of tomb in the city. Interesting. Hmm. All right, I buy that. Well, friends, we did it. And you listeners, if you have made it to this episode, give yourselves a stirring round <laughs> of applause. Congratulations. Pat yourself Thank on the back. Thank you for following us this far. This has been such a great ride, and I'm so glad you came along for it with us. We have a couple of episodes left before we leave Hugo behind permanently because we have to talk about the musical. And we're also going to do a wrap-up episode and bring up some of our favorite moments and rehash them. So, until we see you on a subsequent episode. Bon appétit. Bon appétit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.